Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. You know, uh, there's a tendency to think that those who came before us, particularly uh, those who lived perhaps thousands of years before us, uh, that they were a group of men and women who did not have much capacity to think. Or somehow they lived a very dull and monotonous life. Uh, they, didn't have, they didn't have cars, uh, they didn't have a television or laptops or iPhones, and we wonder how they survived without social media. You know, our life to us and the world that we live in, in this 21st century, may seem to us as advanced in, in many ways, and in many ways better than our ancestors. And we can tend to make that comparison on the basis of the relative ease and comfort which we experience in this century, uh, certainly because of advancements in science and technology. But do advancements in science and technology really mean that we are living better lives than our ancestors? As you think about it, think, have cars or TVs or iPhones or social media at the end of the day really made a huge difference in terms of who we are as men and women. I think it was Alistair Begg who had said, yes, we have managed to put man on the moon, but there was nothing for him to do there except stare back at the earth. You know, we have deceived ourselves into thinking that somehow we are better off than our ancestors because at the end of the day, the condition of our hearts is the same. It is that we are a generation just like the previous one, born into sin. That is, by nature, we are sinful people, men and women who rebel against God. Our condition of sin is the same, and our need for salvation and a savior is also the same. And that truth cannot be any clearer than it is, than it is in this chapter that we're about to study together. You see, the event that is recorded in this chapter took place almost 4,000 years ago, and yet the lessons that we can draw from it are more current and relevant than tomorrow's news. And so I've titled our lesson for today, The Judgment Day on Sodom. The Judgment Day on Sodom. Uh, tonight, Lord willing, we'll plan on covering the first 11 verses and hopefully conclude or at least try to conclude by the end of, by the middle of next week when we meet together. You know, last time when we met, we considered the justness of God. And we saw that his justness uh, is seen in the revelation of his plans. Uh, nothing that he does in terms of his judgment on sinful humanity is actually hidden from man. It was not hidden from Abraham, and it's not hidden from you and me. You and I, who's who are children of God, who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we already know how everything is going to come to an end. Nothing is hidden from us. But we also see his justness in the reasonableness of his plans. We saw that his judgments were righteous and just, and that his judgments displayed his mercy and his grace. Last week we also saw that there were two individuals described as men in chapter 18, verse 22, that departed from Sodom while the Lord, that is Yahweh, continued to interact with Abraham. 
And at the end of that chapter, the Lord departs after he has finished speaking with Abraham. And we, then we pick up the story in chapter 19, verse 1, as we firstly consider the arrival of the envoys. The arrival of the envoys, verse 1 to verse 3. So read with me in your copy of God's word. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. And so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. First of all, as we consider the arrival of the envoys, who were these envoys? Who were, what was their identity? We know from verse 1 that these were angels of God. The individuals described in chapter 18, verse 2, and then again verse 22, where Moses uses the word ish to mean man. And now in verse 1 of chapter 19, we are told that these were angels. There the word is malak, which is the Hebrew word for a messenger, a messenger. These were then representatives or messengers of God. They came with a message from God, from Yahweh. Now, there is no indication in the text itself that Lot recognized who these individuals were or recognized them as angels. We, we don't know that. They looked like men. Notice, the, secondly, the timing of their arrival. Verse 1 tells us that it was in the evening. Now, this is the same day that they had met Abraham on. If you remember in chapter 18, they had arrived to meet Abraham around noontime or in the heat of the day. And then they spent a large portion of that afternoon with Abraham. And by the time they come to Sodom, it's already evening. It was dark. And darkness in the scriptures is a picture of our heart before or our life before we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. When we were unredeemed and lost, that's described as darkness. Ephesians 5, 8 says, Paul writes, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, again, Paul says, for you're all sons of light and sons of day. That is now, we are not of night nor of darkness. Our Lord himself says in John chapter 8, verse 12, as he spoke to the crowd, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light of life. Our darkness, then, is a representation of our life before we came to know the Lord. It is dark by the time the angels arrive in Sodom. And so Moses is preparing his original readers and us that something ominous is about to happen. The timing. But thirdly, as we think of the arrival of the envoys, think of the host and the location that we are looking at. Moses tells us, that when the angels up approach Sodom in verse 1, they find Lot, that is Abraham's nephew, sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now to sit at a gate in, during these times, it was a responsibility that was given to leaders of the city. 
And so the leaders sat at the gate to discuss important matters. Uh, you see, when, if they were sitting at the gate, they could keep a track of those who were coming in and those who were leaving the city. Uh, this is how they would exercise control and provide leadership to the city. It's like, it was like the town hall uh, of, of our times. And so sitting at the gate was quite the position that Abraham's nephew occupied. Now, why is it quite the position? Uh, well, think with me, and if you want, you can note these verses down, but think of uh, the progress or the descent in, into the condition that Lot is in. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, we are told that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of Jordan. That is, he looked toward Sodom. That's what he did in Genesis 13, 10. In Genesis 13, 12, we are told that Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. That is, he is no longer looking at Sodom now. He is pitching his tents. He's moving his residence closer to Sodom. That's Genesis 13, 12. Then in Genesis 14, 10, we are told that Lot was now living in Sodom. He's no longer just looking at Sodom. He's no longer living near Sodom. He is now living in Sodom. But that is still not the end. He is, as we read in verse 1 here, he's now sitting at the gates of Sodom. That is, he's occupying a position of leadership in this city. In Lot, then, we see an example of a gradual and steady pro progression towards a life that makes compromises. He starts by looking at Sodom, but then when we meet him in 19 verse 1, we now see him at the gates of Sodom. It's not as if he woke up one day to find, suddenly, find himself suddenly at the gates of Sodom. No, there was a steady progression towards where he is. How does a married man find himself in bed with a woman that is not his wife? It's not that he goes to sleep one night and suddenly find himself, finds himself committing adultery the next day. No, there's always, always a steady progression towards a life of sin. There are compromises made in the smaller decisions of life and very soon there are big compromises that don't seem like a big deal at all. How does it begin? It begins with small, seemingly harmless thoughts in your hearts. Perhaps staying later in your workplace than usual, a longer interactions about trivial issues, and very soon we are sucked into thinking that our desires are our needs. Uh, James, our Lord's half-brother, captures this progression well when he writes in James 1, 14 and 15, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And such compromises, unless stopped in their track, always, always lead to death and destruction. A host, and then the location. Fourthly, and finally, as we think of these first three verses, notice the invitation and the meal. What does Lot do when he sees these visitors? He rises to meet them, 
And then he greets them by bowing down with his face to the ground, verse 1. That is, he shows them respect and, and honor as guests. Uh, he also calls them lords, verse 2, or masters, Adonai, and calls himself as their servants as he invites them to his house to rest and refresh themselves. And then he says, you can then get up and go early on your way. But if you read closely, there is a hint here uh, of some urgency with which Lot moves. It seems as though Lot is aware of the kind of society he lived in. Notice he, first of all, quickly rises to meet them, verse 19, and greet them. And then he invites them into his house before anyone else at the gates does. He invites them to spend the evening with him. And then he tells them that they can rise early and then head out before the city is up and running. And when they say, no, we will spend the night in the square, verse 2 at the end, he urges them strongly, verse 3. The word there for strongly is exceedingly or abundantly. And and the word there for urging is the same word translated as pressing hard uh, in verse 9. A lot is almost, in, in another sense, verse 3, physically pressing them hard, forcing them, urging them strongly to spend the night, in the, not in the, in the square, but to in, instead to accept his invitation. And when they see him do that, they accept his invitation. Now, think about what happened in chapter 18 with Abraham. Unlike Abraham, who asks Sarah and his servants to prepare a meal for the guests, we find that Lot himself, verse 3, is the one who prepares a feast, a banquet for them, and then he bakes unleavened bread for them and they eat. Uh, this is, by the way, in verse 3, another indication of the urgency that Lot is displaying here. How do we know that? Know that? Well, this is the first time the word unleavened occurs in the scriptures. Now, of course, this is the book of Genesis, so there's a lot of firsts, But this is the first time the word unleavened occurs here. The next time that it occurs is Exodus chapter 12, where the Lord is giving instruction to the Israelites about the Passover meal. And if you remember anything about the Passover meal, it was to be eaten with haste. They were to eat what they were eating in urgency, in haste. There was a sense of urgency that they were to display in eating the Passover meal. What was unleavened bread? It was simply a bread that was made without leaven or without yeast. Uh, It was kind of hard and thin uh, crackers, so to speak. And just like judgment followed after Passover on the Egyptians, a meal where unleavened bread was a part of, we see here unleavened bread baked by Lot. Moses then, in other words, is preparing us as readers for the judgment that is to come on Sodom. There is more to the story always than, than appears to us in the first reading. But, but you might think, well, why? why? Why judgment on Sodom? Well, Moses has already told us why, verse, eight, uh, verse 20 of chapter 18. Uh, notice what, what it says there. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. And so in some ways, we already know why there is a judgment. We now get a first-hand glimpse of what, uh, how, how much, how, what, what depth 
the sin was too as we consider the next few verses. So first of all, the arrival of the envoys. Secondly, the absolute evil of the Sodomites. Verse 4 to verse 9. Let me read verse 4 and verse 5 to begin with as we first of all think of the depravity of man. It says, Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Before they hit the bed, within a few hours of entering the town, they find that the men of Sodom have come to visit them. Notice, first of all, who these men are. It says here, they are the men of the city. Uh, that is, they were men of Sodom. Uh, they are both young and old men that are involved. Uh, they are men from every section of the society, rich and poor, health and um, healthy and, and weak, tall and, and, and short, the elite and the non-elite, every one of them has showed up at Lot's doorstep. And it's not just one or two or a sample of the men of the city. Uh, no, this is all men that were in the city from all parts of the city. You see, one sin invades, one sin is allowed to linger on it pervades all aspects of society. All ages, all quarters, it says. It's important to note that word all in there. In verse 4, sin is like the disease that starts from within and left checked, unchecked and undetected spreads like a gangrene in the entire body. And once it starts, there is no stopping it. Uh, the word all also should remind us of Abraham's conversation at the end of chapter 18 with the Lord. Remember that conversation? The Lord at the end had promised to Abraham that if he had found 10 righteous in Sodom, that he will not destroy it on account of the 10. And the word all tells us that barring Lot, with the exception of Lot, there is not a single man that is found to be righteous in Sodom. All men were outside the doorsteps of Lot. Notice not only who they were, but notice secondly what they demand, verse 5. Uh, they begin by calling out Lot and ask him, where are the men who came to visit with him? You see, outside it's already evening, it is dark. Uh, but now we see the darkness of the hearts of these men as well. Uh, why do they want to see these people? Notice verse 5, bring them out so that we may have relations with them. The word translated relations in Hebrew is the word yada, which means to know someone. And so some have said that the sin of Sodom was that they were unkind to the visitors. They were not hospitable enough. That was the sin of the Sodomites. How naive. How naive. What the men were looking for is to have a homosexual relationship with these two visitors. That's what they were looking for. Granted that the word means to know or as in knowledge, but it is also used for knowing in terms of physical intimacy or sexual intimacy. 
Uh, the same word is used in chapter 4 in regards to Adam and Cain, where it says that they knew their wives or they had relations with their wives. You don't have to turn there, but in describing the sin of the Sodomites, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 and 50, it says this. This is the Lord. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister. Uh, the sister here is Jerusalem. Uh, your is, the, is, is Jerusalem. The sister here is Sodom. It says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. But she did not help the poor and needy. And then verse 50 says, Thus they were haughty and com committed abominations before me. Committed abominations. And it says, therefore I removed them when I saw it, referring to this particular chapter. Now if that is not clear enough, I think the strongest reason that this is referring to a homosexual relation is within the narrative itself. Notice Lot's counter-offer to their demand. Verse 8, he says, in verse 8 to them, not my guests, but my daughters. You can have relations with them. Clearly then, there is a sexual aspect to the relationship that is, that is being referred to here. And so that raises the question, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? Now we can take an entire series or do an entire series on, on this, but I do want to give you some verses to consider and study on your own. But what does the Bible teach or on homosexuality. The Bible clearly declares homosexual conduct as sinful. Both Old and the New Testament condemn homosexuality. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22, it says, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20 verse 13, if there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act they shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. And so there is a consequence for being involved in such an action because of where it leads to. Where does this kind of a action lead to? Well, that brings me to New Testament, Romans chapter 1. A familiar passage to us who have been, who have been in Romans for some time and have studied that with our pastor Paul writes there, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. If that is not clear enough, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this in verse 11. Such were some of you. In other words, that was your lifestyle before you came to know the Lord as your Lord and Savior. Clearly then, the Bible condemns homosexuality as something that is sinful. In fact, the Old Testament penalty for it, as we read, was death. Secondly, 
such an act and lifestyle in reality is a judgment of God upon wherever that is taking place. Such an act and lifestyle in reality is a judgment of God wherever it is taking place. You see, judgment or the wrath of God is seen in a few, few ways. Uh, there is an inbuilt consequence or a judgment with some sins. A judgment that is sometimes seen in its immediate effects. Uh, think about this particular activity uh, that, that, that can have an impact on your body. D diseases as those that are sexually transmitted such as HIV or herpes or HPV and others. Uh, that can be a part of the immediate judgment. But there's also eschatological judgment also that is coming. And both men and women who have ever lived in the history of the world will one day face it. We know that from various scriptures in the New Testament. Then there is a judgment that is seen in God giving the sinners up. Uh, we read that language in Romans chapter 1. Let's turn there quickly as we look at a couple of verses there. God gave them over is a common refrain, common phrase that is used in Romans chapter 1. At least three times we see Paul using that phrase in that chapter. Verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. Now there are two ways that you can think of what the term gave them over means. One is that it means God withdrew his restraining and protective hand and allowed the result of the sin to take its course. Uh, that could be one meaning of gave them up. But there's another meaning as well. It also means that God unleashed his judgment in response to the sin of man. We see both of these judgments in here in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you were to go back to Romans 1, we see here once, uh, we see here uh, when the first time it is used, notice verse 24. When God gives an individual or a nation over, the first area that is impacted is, is sexuality, is physical relationships. Notice verse 40, 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And so the first area that is impacted when God gives someone over is found in sexual promiscuity. Sexual activities that are not permitted by the scriptures. It could be adultery or it could be fornication. But it does not remain there though. Notice verse 26. Sexual promiscuity then leads to something else. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And similarly, in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Sexual promiscuity then leads to homosexuality. And notice the final descent into depravity Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. What an indictment. A depraved mind? You see, this is the kind of mind that has lost all capacity to think clearly, 
coherently, logically, and rationally. Nothing that comes out of their mouth makes sense anymore. Now, that is a depraved mind. Now, if you want to know if we as a nation are under any judgment of God, you don't have to look any further than Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Because that's where we are. What do we do? Well, as a society, we offer babies on the altar of freedom. We don't know what a woman is anymore. We don't know the difference between a man and a woman. We call evil good and good evil. Uh, this is not a suggestion for you to vote one way or the other. This is just a fact. Our president calls those who think in this way, in, including transgenderism, as, quote, some of the bravest people I know. We are at a point where the person occupying the highest office in the nation is celebrating this third stage of God's judgment. It is clear then that the depravity of man is fully exhibited in what the men of Sodom were demanding from Lot. How does Lot think of these things? What is his response? That brings us to what he says to them brings us to the debased thinking of Lot. The debased thinking of Lot. Lot is fully aware of the situation. He knows what these men are demanding, and so he comes out to them, verse 6. Go back to Genesis chapter 19. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he comes out to them, verse 6, at the doorway, and then shuts the door behind them. And he says to them, verse 7, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Please, my brothers. And remember, Lot is described by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, as a righteous man. Now, perhaps Lot is trying just to be a gentleman. He's trying to be kind to these people. And this is, after all, a righteous man. He's calling wicked men of Sodom as his brothers. Someone has said, Lot is the highest example of a compromised life. He is as carnal as a carnal Christian can be. Peter tells us, going on in 2 Peter chapter 2, he says that he, that is Lot, was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, and while living among them, he felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. We have here an example of what happens to someone who says, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. Now they're saying those, uh, what, what they're trying to say is, let your life preach the gospel well. Uh, there's, no, there's no disagreement with that, but not to use words at all? Well, that is exactly opposite of what the Bible says. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13 and 14, it says, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Someone needs to go and share the gospel. The Lord did practice the gospel, but there's no mention of him ever sharing about the God that he believed in. He calls them brothers. Is there any wonder then? But there is one thing that we can give Lot a credit for. 
He calls their actions wicked, verse 7. Do not act wickedly, he says. In the midst of the crooked and perverse generation that Lot is living in, Lot identifies and calls out that which is wicked. But before we conclude that Lot is a very upright and a godly man, notice what he says next in verse 8. And I must tell you that as a father myself, this was just heartbreaking and crushing even to read, let alone study and go deeper into it. Notice verse 8. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with a man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. He says to them, he has two daughters, they're virgins, no one has slept with them. Let me bring them out to you and you can do to them whatever you like. You want to sexually assault my guest? Uh, don't do that because that will break the cultural norm. But here are my daughters, he says, you can do whatever you want to do with them. You see, he's more sensitive to the demands of the culture than he is to the demands of his creator. It's hard not to conclude that Lot himself has been deeply influenced by the culture that he is living in. Perhaps he has seen something like this happen in somebody else's house. And instead of impacting the culture that is around him, he himself is impacted by the culture that he is living in. How does one even reach such a stage? Now we've already looked at the way he progressively compromised little by little, habit by habit. But you know, if there's one lesson that we can draw before we move to the next text uh, from Lot's life, it's something that, that Mike prayed about earlier. It, it is that Lot's life should convince us that we are to maintain a regular and a consistent fellowship with godly Christian. There's no one mentioned here in Lot's life who is a godly influence on him or he is a godly influence on them. And so if God moves you from here to another location, look for a local body of believers who you can align yourself with. A local church where you can with other believers worship God sit under the teaching of his word and along with others share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes some of you don't come regularly to 128 and that is fine, but if I don't see you come regularly to the worship time together on Sundays, you may end up receiving a call from us trying to find out what's going on in your life. We're not just interested in the fact that we, we want a number of people in our church but there is a genuine concern for your soul because if you're not regularly meeting with godly believers, this is where you end up being. You see, a burning coal can thrive only in the company of other coals that are burning as well. On its own, it becomes weak and ineffective. The debased thinking of Lot. We consider the depravity of man, the debased thinking of Lot, finally, the degenerate obstinacy of the crowd. The degenerate obstinacy of the crowd. Notice verse 9. But they said, Stand aside, 
Furthermore, they said this one came in as an alien and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. And so they pressed hard against Lot and came nearer to break the door. Uh, to be degenerate is to lose all the normal capacities of life, uh, the capacity to be thoughtful and, and rational, and continue to decline in those capacities. And to be obstinate is to stubbornly refuse to change one's course of action. Lot thought in his mind that he was offering a better deal to the crowd. But if you've dealt with a crowd, you know that reasoning with a crowd does not ever work. Notice how they respond, verse 9. Step aside, get out of our way, don't come in our way. And then they remind him of his status. You're not even a citizen here, they say. You came here as an alien, as an outsider, and you think you can now judge us? We don't listen to outsiders. And then they threaten him. Whatever we, we do to the visitors, they say, we will do to you, and we will treat you even worse than we have treated the visitors. And this time, it is not Lot pressing the visitors to stay like he did earlier on. This time, it's the crowd that is pressing hard on him and increasingly coming near to the door with an intention to break it. That's where we are in verse 9. They're not listening to him. They don't have any intention to listen to him. In fact, they double down on their demands. Uh, this is a degenerate obstinacy of the crowd. The absolute depravity of man, the debased thinking of Lot, and then finally, the degenerate obstinacy of the crowd. What a sad, sad chapter this is. But we are not done yet. Notice thirdly, the immediate acquittal of Lot, verse 10 and verse 11. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, and they varied themselves trying to find the doorway. Now by acquittal, I mean setting free of someone. In this case, it's immediate because it's temporary and it is, it is short-lived as we see here. Uh, the visitors do two things. At the beginning of this narrative, if you remember, it was Lot who strongly urged the visitors to enter his house. And at the end of this short narrative of 11 verses, we find the visitors reaching out, and I can say strongly urging, in fact, pulling Lot into his own house and then shutting the door. The visitors recognize that you cannot win against a crowd, especially in the frenzy that they were in. And the immediate solution, the only solution was to pull Lot in and let the door be the barrier between them and the crowd. Now at this stage, when they pull Lot in, perhaps Lot is beginning to think he's not dealing with some mortals here. He's dealing with someone who is supernatural in, in their makeup. And if that is his thought, then it turns out to be right, as notice what they do secondly. They struck the men with blindness who were at the doorway. And just in case we think it's just the older men, it says they're both small and great. In other words, everyone who has turned up at Lot's door was struck with blindness. In fact, it goes on to say that they became tired. They varied themselves trying to find the doorway. Now, in the immediate rescue of Lot, we see two things. 
One is that it is now clear to Lot and perhaps some of the immediate family members of Lot that the visitors are not just men as they look like, but they're truly someone who is supernatural in their makeup. After all, who strikes people with blindness at will? Only supernatural people can, can do that. But secondly, and more importantly, we see a glimpse, even a, a hint of an eventual rescue that Lot himself will face. You see, the, if the visitors are able to strike the men with blindness who are outside, then they're surely in a position to rescue him from whatever is coming up in the next few days or in the next few hours, right? Lord willing, we will cover that next week. But what can we learn as believers from this passage? You see, if you're a follower of Christ, uh, you can relate with Lot. Our situation is so much like Lot's situation. We too live in a world that is increasingly godless and one that hates God. We are surrounded by men and women who are in sin and in rebellion against a holy God. Not only that, they are lost and they don't even know that they are lost. They are dead in their sins, Paul says. But we don't have to respond like Lot did. What are some applications that we can take? I just have a few for us. Uh, first of all, don't forsake assembling together. Don't forsake assembling together. A follower of Christ is never meant to be on his or her own. We are meant to be joined and to be connected with other believers. The church, after all, is called a body of Christ, the body of Christ. Don't deceive yourselves into thinking, well, I don't like to talk to anyone. I'm not a people's person or whatever excuses you can come up with. No, you're playing a dangerous game if you rescue yourself, if you recuse yourself, rather, from being with other believers. If it's the body of Christ, how odd would it be if you find different parts of the body doing different things on their own in different locations? No, that, that would be strange. That would be odd. We are meant to be together with other believers. If you don't participate in a local body as a committed member, you should yourself sense that this is not how it is meant to be. Don't forsake assembling together. I have two more applications, but I want to turn to second, uh, Philippians chapter 2 to get that. It's a similar situation that is, that is here that Paul describes the Philippians to be in. Yet if there is one word that describes what Philippians is about, what would that word be? What is the book of Philippians about? That's a question that I would love a response to. Joy, joy. In the midst of difficult circumstances, if there's one quality that should define all of us, it is the word joy. How sad it is that week after week, if you come here, or anyone that you see who says they're a follower of Christ, but yet there is no joy on their face. Notice verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, 
children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generations, among, generation rather, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Notice, secondly, we are to continue to live lives above reproach. Don't grumble, don't dispute, don't complain. How sad to see a Christian always complaining. That chair is not like that. That place to sit is not like that. The food is not good. There's no water. There's no coffee. Why don't they have donuts always? On and on and on. What happens when you grumble or dispute? You see, when you grumble or dispute, you're actually grumbling or disputing against God. When you dispute something, you're saying about situations and circumstances, this ought not to be so. Uh, You are disputing really the truth of a matter. It's always sinful for a believer to complain about what the Lord calls them to do or about a situation or a circumstance that the Lord places them in. Don't be known as a person who grumbles. Don't be known as a person who always is disputing or complaining. By the end of verse 15, notice what he says. We are to let our testimony shine forth brightly. You see, God has placed you and me as lights in a dark world. Shine for him. Stand for him. Represent him well. Live lives Continue to live lives above reproach. Thirdly, and finally, boldly continue to proclaim the word of God. Paul says here, verse 16, holding fast the word of life. The word of life can either be scriptures, or it can, Paul may mean the gospel, or it could mean both, a combination of both of them. What Paul is saying is that in the midst of difficult circumstances, if you were to find yourself, and we are, in large situation, in a, in a world that is crooked and perverse, boldly continue to proclaim the word of God. That is, hold fast the word of life. Hold fast to it. Treasure it. Value it. And then boldly proclaim it. That is the best response we can give as we find ourselves in Lord's circumstance. Let's pray as we get into small groups. Father, thank you for this reminder from your word, how relevant and how current it is, Lord, to the situation that we all are living in. Just like Paul reminds us in this book and in, this, in these few verses, Lord, help us to be people who live lives that are above reproach. If we find ourselves grumbling or complaining, help us, remind us, that we ought to sit down and think what is going on in our own hearts. Not only that, Lord, we think of other responses to this particular chapter, even as Lord found himself quite alone in a world that was filled with wickedness, uh, that we can learn from his life that he has really forsaken assembling together with other believers. Lord, help us in this area. And then finally, Lord, we pray that you would give us boldness and courage to proclaim your word with clarity, with conviction. And base all of that, Lord, 
in the fact that we are men and women of integrity and character. May that be our testimony in this world that we live in. I do pray for our time together in our small groups. I pray that you would be exalted and honored through it all. In Jesus' precious and worthy name I pray. Amen.